Please take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 8. As we continue in our study, it just gets increasingly helpful to me personally in my desire to love and trust and honor the Lord. I hope for you as well that as you grow in your understanding of this increasing division between what it is to believe in Jesus Christ and what it is to follow him and not believe in him, uh, it's very interesting that this study gets more and more microscopic in terms of the call for you and me to look closely at uh, what you might call splitting hairs. At one point in the text that we'll be looking at, there are those who believe in Jesus, and yet they are not believers. Uh, Warren Wiersbe has said about that, uh, he has called them believers who don't believe. And so uh, you may at some point get to the place where you're thinking, you know, so what is the right vocabulary? You know, a number of years ago, in an effort to separate themselves from or to be known differently from the Roman Catholic Church, the Christian Church uh, took on the buzz term, born-again Christians. And that really helped because it really established that necessary distinction. There was nothing in Roman Catholicism that had any sort of affinity toward the idea of being born again. It was all about works. It was all about Jesus did some things, I do some things, we together kind of maintain my salvation. It still is. But then not only the Roman Catholic Church, but a lot of apostate churches embraced that terminology. At one point, the term became evangelicals. You know, and that was sort of our premier term. We, we loved that term. We were those who were committed to the good news, those who were committed to the gospel. And so that separated us. When I say us, I was probably 12 at the time. I wasn't even a believer. But it separated believers from false believers, the evangelicals. Well, you've heard me use the term evangelical in more of a pejorative sense than I have in a positive sense over the last several years, because sadly, the evangelical church, those who consider themselves to be amongst the evangelical church, have embraced lots of heresy. And so evangelical really doesn't do it. John MacArthur has suggested that we use the term imputationists. I don't think that's going to fly, and he was kidding when he said it, but it is the difference. It really is the difference. The idea that the righteousness of Christ is imputed to the believer, not earned, not chosen, not obtained by one's own doing, but it is God who is the subject of imputation. Paul speaks of our sins being imputed to Christ. You see that idea in 1 Corinthians 5 that he became sin. I mentioned that in our opening prayer this morning. He became sin. And so the idea is that God, when God looks at him, he sees the sins of the elect. And those sins, as a result, are born by him, and then he dies for them. He dies for sins. What sins? Sins that are imputed to him. Sins that are declared. That's the idea of imputation. It's a legal declaration. Those sins are declared to be his. Even though he did not commit them, he takes on the responsibility for them. That's imputation. You and I, on the other hand, if we're in Christ, have the righteousness, the non-sinfulness, the sinlessness of Christ imputed to us, to our account. 
So God looks at him, he sees our sinfulness, he holds him accountable for it, he kills him for it. It pleased God to crush him, Isaiah 53. But then when he looks at you and me, he sees the perfect, sinless, obedient life of his son. And so his sinlessness is imputed to us. So as we get closer and closer down into the funnel, that figure of speech that I've used to describe the book of John, you start with this wide-brimmed reality of lots of significant but somewhat general theology. And as the funnel tightens, fewer and fewer people are willing and able to go down into that very tight theological doctrinal position. It's uncomfortable, and as the false followers in our text are described by John, they turn away from Jesus. He quotes them as saying, this is a hard saying. Have you ever heard somebody make the statement, oh, the Bible's just so easy to understand? See, I think that's very likely. If, if a person really wants other people to believe that, if a person is really committed to that idea being a pervasive reality for anybody and everybody, just read the Bible, it's easy to understand. I think that's very likely a false convert. I think that's very likely someone who has an affinity for things in the Scripture because he can sort of validate his own morality by finding things in the Bible that make him feel better about his belief that he's better than others. But if you've made any substantial effort to really do the hard work of understanding some of the deeper truths of Scripture, you know it's full of hard sayings. Now at the same time, there's a lot of overlap in terms of the ability for the unbeliever, the unregenerate person, to believe things in the Bible in the way that a believer would believe things in the Bible, particularly the book of Proverbs. There's not much in the book of Proverbs that an unbeliever would look at and go, that doesn't make any sense at all. They're Proverbs, they're truisms, they're generalities, they're real-life, logical, essential truths. It's not didactic teaching. Uh, Solomon's not teaching theology in the book of Proverbs. He's teaching the reality that if you live a relatively clean life, then life will go well. If you live a dirty life, then life will be very difficult. It's not to say that God will not have sovereignly decreed much difficulty and suffering for the believer. In fact, we know, especially from 1 Peter, among other places, 1 Thessalonians, that he has decreed that. But the person who is able to work through those things, to endure those things with joy and with peace and with happiness, is the person who rests in the Lord. He lives a clean life. And so even though there is much difficulty in life, no matter who you are, the person who genuinely and faithfully walks with the Lord by abiding in his word experiences the joy that only believers have in the midst of trial, in the midst of difficulty. But as the funnel tightens, as we get deeper and deeper into that tightening funnel, the terminology gets more and more precise. We see very precise terminology in our text today. But before we get into that text, we need to address what in the world we're going to do with John 7, verse 53, through John 8, verse 11. Very likely, in your copy of God's Word, there are brackets around that section. 
because nearly every modern version puts it in brackets. And the brackets are there for the purpose of showing that they are suspect. You're saying my Bible's got flaws? I'll answer that question. But the brackets are there because, to put it simply, the early manuscripts from which translators have developed the copy of God's Word that you hold in your hands, whether it's a physical Bible or on your iPhone or whatever, and translators over the years determined that verse 53 through verse 11 are suspect. Why? Because they are not in the most reliable and the earliest manuscripts. But you need to know that the Bible that you use on a daily basis did not get parachuted from heaven in the format in which you have it. So with the development of understanding of what the canon is, then the church determined with full unanimity that certain books are of the canon and certain aren't. The Roman Catholic Church added books later. The Apocrypha, meaning not real, meaning phony books that are included in the Bible that are added between the Old and the New Testament. They would refer to that just as Scripture. They are loaded with historical errors, things that are plainly and clearly not true simply from a historical perspective, much less the bad doctrine in them. I had a recent discussion with a man over the deity of Christ, and his go-to passage came from the Apocrypha. Now, this is a guy that knows better. And so I pointed out, you know, you know you're leaning on heretical books. And he says, well, I'm just you know, pulling from those because they have a Jewish flavor so you can better understand Jewish literature. And I said, well, how about, I don't know, the Old Testament? Why not just use the Old Testament? It's entirely Jewish literature. Why don't we just stick with that? So it's important to understand why it is that you can trust the Bible. The book that I gave our graduates today is an excellent book for you to have in your library. Just about any question that you might have about the veracity of Scripture is going to be answered in that little book, and you could probably get through it in a week or so just by reading a little bit every night, and you probably won't be able to put it down. It's going to be very, very informative and educational. And again, I think it's critical that as a believer you understand why the Bible is trustworthy. Too often people will say the Bible is trustworthy, and then some unbeliever who's a Bible expert, right? You've run into those folks. The Bible's been translated so many times from one translation to another. had a conversation with a guy not too long ago. I asked him, so what's your perspective on how the Bible was collected over the years? And he said, do you know the telephone game? He was saying that he felt like people just kind of threw the Bible together over the years. There is no document on the planet that's even remotely close. It's not even a remotely close second to the accuracy with which the Bible confirms itself. When you consider that it was written by 40 human authors over 3,500 years and the congruity. Let's just talk about the Gospels for a minute. People talk about the synoptic problems, the seeming contradictions in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It takes some study, and this is why we would agree that these are hard sayings. It would seem at times as if we're looking at contradictions, but the more you study, the more you understand the whole of Scripture, what we call the analogy of the faith, we realize that Scripture interprets Scripture. And pretty soon as you're working through something, the light comes on, if you're in Christ. 
And there's a very distinct line between those who can understand the greater and harder truths of the Bible versus those who simply cannot, and they will turn away from Jesus and walk away. The more glassy-eyed you get when we get into the deeper issues of the Scripture, the more you should be concerned about your soul. If you are increasingly losing interest in the truths into which we're delving in the book of John, if you're not really giving it much effort, that's one thing. But if you've really given it a go, if you're trying to do the study guide and you go, I just can't understand any of this. I've tried using a Bible dictionary. I've used commentaries. I'm looking at encyclopedias. I've talked to others who seem to be mature in the faith. If you can say all that and you're still saying, you know what, this is just really not cutting it with me. It's, it's all not making sense. You should really be concerned about your soul. On the other hand, if you really haven't given it much effort, you have no way of knowing whether or not you're a believer. You have no way of knowing if you're really not doing the study guides. We're getting into difficult text. So it's important that you're working on it yourself. We happen to be in a passage today that you've already been through. Many times I'm teaching, and you might be sitting out there with your study guide, maybe jotting down a few of the answers. That's not wrong, but just know that the study guide is not a study on my sermon, right? The study guide is a study on the passage that I might be dealing with, and I might be dealing with next week, or maybe I dealt with it last week. But the purpose of the study guide is to enrich those who are in Christ, to have a deepening understanding of the depth of the Word of God so that they would be increasingly and effectively equipped to win people to the Jesus of the Bible. And the less you understand who he really is, the less you're going to be equipped. But of course, the more you study, the more you spend time talking to others, fellowshipping over the Word of God, the more you're going to understand it and the better you're going to be equipped and the more excited you're going to be in an effort to honor the Lord with your life so that what we looked at last week that was referred to as rivers of life, that metaphor, the idea is that the joy and the beauty of Christ is pouring out of your heart, much like water gushed in a flood-like fashion out of a dry rock in the desert for the people of Israel that that flood of truth and love and joy and compassion and happiness is emanating from you in such a way that people can't help but notice. When I was in college, I was an angry young man. There was a guy named Pat Newman. <laughs> Pat was always happy. Well, you can imagine what that did for a guy like me back then. I mean, I was a football player, and that's all I knew. I went to college to play football, and I accidentally got a degree while I was there. And Pat, one day, was skipping along the sidewalk. I mean, I think he might really have actually literally been skipping. But I'm walking along, you know, and I'm tough, big, bad football player. And Pat kind of, you know, dude, he's, he's whistling. He's whistling. That's annoying, right? So Pat's whistling, and he kind of, you know, probably rubbed my sleeve or something as he walked by. And I said, hey! And I don't remember all the details from there, but it came down to him just being too happy. That's sad. Well, these days I whistle a lot. Kimberly has often said she's, 
she's glad when she hears me whistling because she knows I'm okay. You know? Apparently there's nothing wrong right now, so he's whistling. That's good. It's a good sign. Happy people do happy things. People who are in Christ, who experience this overflow of what the Bible calls the rivers of life, can't help but display that. And you know this about yourself, right? People know you for who you really are once they get to know you. You might be good at putting on a show. Some people really are really good at putting on a show. But eventually, who you really are comes out. So whatever is in you, you probably need to become aware of the fact that other people know you better than you do. You and I are typically willing to give ourselves the benefit of the doubt, especially when it comes to our thought life. And even more so when it comes to how we think we appear in front of others. That's why the one another's in the Bible are so important. That's why the church is so important. If you don't have vibrant relationships where there are those who know that they can come to you and address things in your life, things are probably not really good. You're probably attempting to fool yourself into thinking that you're doing much better than you are. As I mentioned, I had the privilege to teach at Grace Advance on uh, Friday. And these are men who are going through the program that I went through uh, seven, eight years ago in preparation for planting the Anchor Bible Church. And it was just an immense joy to have Steve Burton there with me. Over the years when I've gone back and taught, I've been able to take some of the guys. This is Steve's second time going with me. I was happy to tell them, number one, men, you need to be surrounded by men who are going to tell you the truth about you. And I was even happier to be able to tell them that the guy sitting in the back of the room is willing to do that with me. Steve's not naturally a person who likes to confront people, but Steve loves me a lot. And so therefore, he's willing to tell me the truth, and he's done that over the years. But see, that's how believers operate. But think of it. The person who resists God's word, doesn't understand God's word, thinks he does understand God's word, or at least wants other people to think that he understands God's word, has no interest in accountability. None. He might pretend that he does from time to time. He might toy around with that just so as to gain favor with others, but he's not really interested in keeping his computer screen in a place where people can see it at any given moment. He'd really rather have that and especially the contents of his heart hidden. And so what Jesus is doing for us in this text is exposing the drastic difference between those who really want accountability and those who don't. And no, he's not dealing with that in that terminology. But what you're seeing in the Pharisees is a pretty massive craftiness and an ability to run from the exposure of what's going on in one's heart. Well, I sort of went off on a tangent there, but all that stuff is important. Let me get back now to the veracity of the Bible that you hold in your hands. We have what we call internal evidence and external evidence when it comes to determining the background the veracity of Scripture, why do we believe that it's actually Bible, it's part of the canon, and why it's not. Why is that section in your Bible in brackets? Why does it say that the earliest manuscripts do not include this passage? Well, because that's true, and it's very, very important that you know that. Now, I'm going to make a bold statement, and then we'll move on from there. It's not Scripture. Is it true? Is it possible 
that what's in that section is actual recorded truth, it's very possible, but we'll never know. Just like the two letters that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. Were they good letters? Well, Paul wrote them. I would assume they're good letters. But we don't have them. They're not in the Bible. We have 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Could we gain some things if we had copies of Paul's letters to the Corinthians that are not in the Bible? I'll bet we could. I'm sure we could. Much like you really value that letter that you hang on to because your grandmother wrote it to you or your best friend or your spouse or maybe one of your kids. You've got something in writing and it's greatly valuable. And that's the way much of these things that sometimes are considered scripture that actually are not should be viewed. Why is it that we can say we trust the Bible if there are things like this in it? Start here. Psalm 119, verse 89. For me, in my Old Testament class in seminary, my Old Testament introduction class, the light came on when Dr. Barrick said, Psalm 119, 89 is really the starting place for us. Your word, O Lord, is preserved forever in heaven. Where are the original autographs stored? Where are the original manuscripts? Let me put it this way. They're in the air. (laughs) They're not in a museum. They're not in a safe. They're not in somebody's library. They don't exist anymore. They disintegrated a long time ago, like everything else that was written back then disintegrated. But we have reliable copies. And yes, the Dead Sea Scrolls are huge with regard to this. Uh, I encourage you to visit the Museum of the Bible. You get a really good understanding of why we trust in the records that we have. We have over 5,000 pieces of manuscripts from which the New Testament that you hold in your hand is developed. 5,000 remnants. What other document comes even close? The more famous documents that might come to your mind, we might have eight or nine. We might have eight or nine copies. So you have all these copies that were copied by scribes, and the scribes' purpose was to preserve the Word of God over time, such that when translators went to develop the ESV, the English Standard Version, which is the one we use more so around here, they were able to study those manuscripts. And from those manuscripts, we're able to develop that, well, the New American Standard, of course, everybody knew this already, is a literal translation. It's completely reliable, but it's quirky, right? It's not the English of our day. It was originally uh, translated in 1971. I, for a long time, used the 1995 version because that was updated and it was a little smoother. But I talked to the main editor for Crossway uh, who developed the ESV several years ago, and I was thinking about making the switch, and I said, just give me in a couple of sentences, give me the, the difference. He simply said, we endeavored to maintain the same faithfulness of the New Testament by making it flow better. You say, that sounds like the NIV. No, it doesn't. The NIV is a dynamic, almost paraphrase. It's a dynamic translation. So there's lots of problems in it. A lot of mistranslations in the NIV. I won't even bring up the message. Oh, wait, I just did. It's not the Bible, in most scholars' opinion. I would not encourage you to read the message. The NIV, okay. The New Living Translation, you see you're getting, the Phillips Translation, you're getting into paraphrases. So long as you know it's a paraphrase, and you're also reading a literal translation along the way, 
then you're going to be okay. But be careful reading paraphrases. And again, Eugene Peterson, when he developed the, the message, had zero intention of, of being faithful to the New Testament and the Old Testament. That was not his intent. His intent was to make it more readable, and therefore he changed a lot of text. And I would encourage you not to subject yourself to it. So the original autographer, the written record, doesn't exist anymore, but the ultimate record is in heaven and has been forever. You say, really? Yeah, in eternity past, the eternal word of God is what it is. It's never changed. But I love this quote. This, again, was my Old Testament professor in seminary, Dr. Bill Barrett. He said, the translation that you hold in your hand is 99.997% accurate. So you have things like this. Now, what other document can you say that about? You have things like this that we can work through, and we can understand the issues with them, and it shouldn't be a problem for the person who wants to believe that the Bible's completely inept and worthless, of course, they'll focus on that 0.003%. I'm not sure I got the math right, but you get my point. They'll want to focus on that, say lots of problems. Mm, that's really silly. The fact of the matter is there is no document that comes remotely close to that with regard to translational accuracy or preservation accuracy as well. Well, regarding internal evidence then, this is where it gets a little more interesting. Um, when it comes to that section there, 753 through 811, the vocabulary changes, the writing style changes. We call that internal evidence. Suddenly, John is writing like a different person. And so that's clear evidence that it doesn't belong there and probably wasn't even written by him. It doesn't fit here. We've just looked at the Feast of Tabernacles. We've dealt with the water ceremony, and we go immediately into the matter of the light ceremony that we're going to talk a little bit about today. And so why in the world would John squeeze in a story about an adulteress? It doesn't fit here between the ceremony of water and the ceremony of light, and it interrupts the rebuke upon the Pharisees. You say, well, wait a minute, it seems very much like a rebuke on the Pharisees. It interrupts the flow of the rebuke because in the story of the adulterous woman, the Pharisees leave, but suddenly they're back without any sort of entrance back into the text. So it makes no sense that it would go here. Another thing that makes it suspect is that it's placed by certain translators in various different places. Some place it here uh, at the end of verse 52. Some place it at verse 36, some place it at verse 44, and some place it in John chapter 21, verse 25. So the very fact that it's placed in various different places makes it suspect, to say the least. In addition to this, over the years, no credible scholars believe that this should be in the Bible. You say, well, then why in the world is it? How did that happen? Well, we don't know, but we do know that scribes make mistakes. Many scribes would, at times, because they get tired when they're writing. Let me give you a little illustration. If I were to show you my seminary notes, all of which I still have and refer to on occasion, showing my boys this the other day, you'll see what looks like relatively legible writing. You can kind of keep up with it, and all of a sudden there's this line that kind of gets squiggly and just goes off the page. You know what's going on there, right? I fell asleep. That happens in seminary. I know you find that really hard to believe. 
But there were times where I would fall asleep, and so that line goes off, and I'm going, where, where were we? What do I do? What do I put here? Scribes would at times fall asleep while they're writing things down. Sometimes they'd write the same. Now, you've never done this, right? They write the same line twice. Have you ever done that when you're reading? You read the same line twice, or you say something you just said. Did I say that already? Scribes are imperfect. The original autographer were flawless. We see this, look with me for a moment at 2 Peter chapter 1. Many of you are very familiar with this passage. In our bibliology studies, we've put a lot of emphasis on this chapter. 2 Peter chapter 1. In verse 19, Peter says, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Peter is referring here to the original autographer, the original manuscripts. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. Prophecy meaning a record of Scripture. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So when we study the Word of God, we're looking at truth that was passed on from the original authors, the original human authors who were indwelt by the Holy Spirit, guided, steered by the Holy Spirit, not in a robotic way because they all wrote in their own natural vocabulary and writing styles, but what they wrote was exactly what God would have them write. And scribes over the years did a pretty amazing job of copying it down and giving to us to this day that which is truly what we can call inerrant. You say, well, how do I, what do I do when I, you know, I don't know where the problems are, the translators tell you. That's why there are brackets on this section. It's one more reason you need a shepherd. You need a pastor, a teacher who's going to help you work through those things. That's what a pastor does. I can remember Alex Montoya, another seminary professor, saying, now look, don't get in the pulpit every Sunday and tell people, well, what this really means is, because pretty soon they're going to have no confidence in their Bibles. You can have confidence in your Bible. There's no reason for you to think, if all you had, think of it, and, and they produce, they call them reader's Bibles. If all you had was a Bible with no study notes and no numbers, and you're literally just reading through the Old Testament, through the New Testament, you can trust it. Because that's what the Spirit of God uses. Now let's go back to that line between the person who can and the person who can't understand the Word of God. Paul leads up to this issue in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 saying that the wisdom of God is foolishness to man and the wisdom of man is foolishness to God. By the time he gets to verse 14, he says, the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot discern them. And friends, there are plenty of liberal theologians and pseudo-Bible readers who fall into that category, and so they never understand and they never want to understand the deeper truths of the person of Christ to which we have arrived in our study in John 8. So with all the internal evidence. We also have external evidence. 
None of the early church fathers include this section in their commentaries. Not one. They all skip it. Or better said, there was nothing to skip because it wasn't there then. You're wondering, well, why are the numbers the way they are? I'll get to that. So the early church fathers never addressed this, never came up. A 4th century Bible scholar named Didymus the Blind includes a commentary on 753 through 811, but with asterisks noting the uncertainty over its authenticity. So the first time a real Bible scholar even addresses it, he addresses it as if it is suspect. As I said, no credible scholar today would tell you that it falls within the system of God's whole canon. So why the numbering? With the King James translation, by that time the insertion had been made, and so the numbering system was established. And with that numbering system, you now have verse 53 through verse 11. When you have other more faithful translations that come along, what are they going to do? Think of how difficult that would have been if they were to just keep moving without dealing with those numbers. Can you imagine? You're sitting next to a friend who has a King James Bible, which is a real Bible, and he gets to verse 53, and you don't have verse 53. So your verse 52 moves on to verse 1 in chapter 8. Confusing. How in the world would you make reference to the passage when you're looking at chapter 8, verse 13? And for them, that's more like chapter 8, verse 2. That's going to be very confusing. So they said, well, we need to acknowledge the fact that a lot of people are dependent upon those numbers. So let's put it in there and let's acknowledge that it's just not included in the early manuscripts. And in my opinion, that was the best way to go about it. So I want to look a little bit at some of the problems in the King James, because here's what you're going to run into. You're going to meet people who consider themselves to be King James onlyists. You ever heard that term? Some of you have met these folks, and so they will deride the NIV, the NAS. They'll say, you know, these modern translations don't hold up. The truth of the matter is they're actually more reliable than the King James. There are problems with the King James. I would still say the problems with the King James do not make it unworthy of reading it. Some of you love the King James because, again, that's what your grandmother and your grandfather read, and uh, you, you love it, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. The trouble is it doesn't use English. Right? It uses old English. This is everybody's complaint. But it certainly sounds more spiritual, doesn't it? You ever heard somebody pray? My grandfather used to pray. He didn't talk in King James English, but for some reason he would pray in King James English, and we'd all sit there and go, whoa, you know, we just thought he was amazing. He was amazing, but it, not because of that. But we just were in awe over the fact that, Lord, we thank thee for this food, and we ask that you bless it to the bountiful pleasure and sustenance of our bodies. And we're all like, don't move, don't breathe, you know. <laughs> but it was very sincere on his part. Why did he pray that way? Because that was the only version there was. You know, he read from the King James, and he loved the King James. This is an excellent book. It's a very technical book, but James White's book called The King James Controversy. Now, I just want to give you a little bit of the problems with the King James, not to undermine the King James. 
We would never hyper-criticize the King James Version. We'd say it is the Bible. But for those who are King James onlyists, they need to be aware. And if they're genuinely interested in reality, then they will listen to you if you were to bring some of this up. He says, the first problem we will examine is to be found in Mark's Gospel, chapter 6, verse 20. I'm going to read you the King James Version, and then I'll read to you from the NAS. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just man and, and holy, and observed him. The NAS says, For Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and kept him safe. Did he observe him, or did he keep him safe? James White, a legitimate scholar, says, Did Herod observe John, as the King James says, or keep him safe, as the NAS says? The Greek term simply does not mean observe, but instead means to protect. One might possibly suggest that observe once meant to protect, but such seems a long stretch, especially since the King James renders the same word preserve at Matthew 19 and Luke 5.38. Skipping down. Of more importance is the rendering offered by the King James translators in Acts 5.30. It says, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. Two different things. You slew him and you hanged him on a tree, according to the King James. The NAS, it more accurately reads, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. The New King James corrects the problem in the King James rendering. Peter did not say that the Jews had slain Jesus and then hung him on a tree. Instead, they put the Lord to death by hanging him upon a tree. One last example in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 4. The King James says, For I know nothing by myself. Paul the Apostle. The NES says, For I am conscious of nothing against myself. This is a very important passage in the New Testament, speaking of the ability to live with a clear conscience. I know nothing against myself. Paul's not saying, For I know, I know nothing by myself. That doesn't even make sense. And it's not accurate. A lot of the inaccuracies have to do with the fact that language changes. A lot of them have to do with the fact that it was simply a mistranslation. So again, please don't think that we're somehow expressing derision toward the King James. We're just saying for those who worship the King James that there are problems with it. And they will say things like this. Well, look at all of the revisions of the NAS and the ESV, especially the ESV. The ESV translators have been very humble about the fact that they could have done better when they did it, and they've made revisions. Praise God for their humility and their willingness to do that. If you're using online versions now, all those problems are cleared up. Because when a correction is made, then everybody has that correction in their online version. It's electronically made, that correction. So, again, we're, we're not criticizing the King James. We're simply saying, for those who say, well, the King James has never been revised, that's actually not true. For people who tell you that, you can say, yeah, you know, that's not really true. But they will say, and this is true, that the translation that they hold today can easily be traced back to being nearly identical to what was published in 1611. And some people will say things like this, well, if it was good enough for Paul the Apostle, it was good enough for me. 
Some people actually believe that Paul the Apostle used the 1611 version. Of course, you know Paul was born slightly before 1611 and died before then too. Well, let's get into our text this morning with what time we have left. This morning, we will observe Jesus restating that he is the light of the world so that we will earnestly call sinners to repent before it is too late. Point number one, Jesus reaffirms his illumination of a dark world. The passage starts out with the word again. He could easily say, so you weren't listening the last time. I'm going to repeat it. You know this. They keep asking him the same questions. He keeps giving them the same answers. It's almost as if they're spiritually dead. It's almost as if they don't hear what he has to say. It's almost as if they don't have ears to hear. It's almost as if they're doing everything they're doing by the flesh, which is what? No help at all. It's not almost. That's the problem. They're spiritually dead. But they think they're connected to the Father because they think they're connected to Abraham spiritually. When they're not, they're connected to Abraham by blood. So they misunderstand and misrepresent what it means to be a child of Abraham, an Israelite, a Hebrew. And they think they know the Father. And Jesus repeatedly tells them, you don't know the Father. Jesus will often repeat himself due to the fact that Many of those in the crowd do not have ears to hear. During the Feast of Tabernacles, along with the morning time water ceremony, there was a nighttime celebration of lights with multiple huge candelabra that lit up the sky. Imagine the largest fireworks display you've ever seen or being in a massive sports stadium where the sky is literally lit up. It was something like that. This, uh, again, was their effort to express gratitude to the Lord, who's the God of light, willing to shed light in a dark world. Much as they engaged in the water ceremony, they engaged in a light ceremony. So in the midst of that context, much like Jesus came on the scene when they are celebrating the Lord and thanking him for the gift of water, he says to them, come unto me, and drink. I am living water. In the very next passage, he moves to this idea, and it's really a repeat of what he said previously back in chapter 1, that he is the light of the world. If you've been in a room that was dark, and when you turn that light on, you saw cockroaches scurry, which I did a few times when I was in college where I lived. You probably developed a habit of turning on the light and looking for those cockroaches. Cockroaches thrive in the dark. Evil thrives in the dark. This is why evil men hate the concept of accountability. Those who do not trust in the Lord want to do everything they possibly can to develop a venue in which they can hide what they do. It's one thing to hide the contents of your heart, and eventually that will be exposed. 
But the man who really wants to be on the up and up with the Lord and with the church is willing to subject himself to the accountability of others. Jesus spoke to them, our text says, saying, I am the light of the world. Jesus came into a dark and dreary and dirty and wicked, sinful, evil world. He says, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The person who legitimately, honestly subjects himself to the leadership of Jesus wants to be in the light. He wants his life exposed. He doesn't want to hide the one who wants to hide but wants to sort of have one foot in the church and one foot in the world, he's going to develop the ability to persuade people to believe that he's not hiding when he is. He just gets better and better and better at hiding. So the person who genuinely subjects himself to Jesus, the person who genuinely subjects himself to people who are subjecting themselves to Jesus, wants to be in the light, and he is in the light. He says to us in 1 John, we are to walk in the light because he is light. The person who walks with Jesus walks in the light. He wants his life exposed. Back in verse 6 of chapter 1, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. See, that's what your ministry should be. Your ministry should be being a light, shedding truth upon the hearts and lives of those who are expressing some sort of interest in Jesus. Darkness, light, darkness, light. All through the book of John, we see light cast upon darkness and what's in the darkness being exposed. In John 5.35, it says about him, about John, that he was a burning and shining lamp and you were willing, willing to rejoice for a while in his light. And again, there was a separation. There were those who wanted to be in the light. John cast light on their lives. They continued to subject themselves to the light of John. And then John, when Jesus comes on the scene, says, behold the Lamb of God, and they immediately go to be with Jesus. Immediately. And then there are those who run from John the Baptist, and then there are those who wanted him dead, and so he was murdered. Why? Why was John murdered? So that the sexual escapades of Herod would not be on display. So common. Those who want to hide in the darkness, while they might not simply because they're not able, actually bring about someone's murder. They'll murder them in their hearts. They'll slander them. They'll gossip about them. Again, throughout the Gospel of John, there is a contrast between the light and the darkness. Further in chapter 12, verse 35, so Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. This is the warning. The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Same message today. While you have the light, while you have the ability to sit under sound biblical teaching, do it. And then subject yourself to people who are doing that, that you would actually walk in the light. Point number two, Jesus affirms his divine trustworthy testimony. 
So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. You remember that they didn't want to believe that he was from heaven. We'll get into the fullness of this in chapter 8, verse 58, where Jesus says, behold, before Abraham was, I am. Next week, we'll look at his statement, unless you believe that I am he, put that in parenthesis. I would encourage you to put that word in parenthesis in your Bible. You will die in your sins. The word he is not there in the original text. Unless you believe I am Yahweh. Unless you believe that I am Yahweh, that I am God, that's the point of that passage. You will die in your sins. This is why we have repeatedly said, the person who believes in the Christ who is not God is not a Christian. It's not a small thing. It's critical. Jesus reaffirms his divine, trustworthy testimony. You know, back in chapter 5, we see the testimony of the Father is manifest in a way that shows Jesus' testimony to be real, to be true, to be trustworthy. Again here, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I'm going. That doesn't seem to make sense unless you understand that his whole point is to say that the reason that my testimony is reliable is because I am God and I came from heaven. I'm God in the flesh. That's why my testimony is reliable. You know that in the Old Testament, the testimony of two witnesses was what was necessary for someone to believe some sort of testimony. I've mentioned that we've always applied that in our parenting. You know, we wouldn't discipline one of our children if there were conflicting stories. You say, well, be a lot of times where you wouldn't discipline them, right? Not really, because eventually we came to realize that our kids were willing to tell the truth if we handled things with grace and with love. But discipline is critical. Discipline is necessary. But what you want to nurture in people is a a willingness to tell the truth and to corroborate with others who are telling the truth. And that's what you have here. That's what happens in Matthew 18. In Matthew 18, you go privately to someone to address their sin. And if they don't respond, well, what do you do? You go back with one or two witnesses to corroborate what happens. Those two witnesses, those two or three witnesses are intended to bring about a a, a like-minded, like-told story. Well, verse 15 continues, I judge no one, Jesus says, yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. The Father has already borne witness in four witnesses back in chapter 5. John the Baptist, God the Father speaks through John the Baptist. He speaks through Jesus' works. He speaks through Scripture, and he speaks through Moses. So the Father bore testimony through those four witnesses. Point number three, Jesus reaffirms the Pharisees' irreversible doom. Their irreversible doom. 
back in verse 14, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You see that this is a problem? You don't know where I come from, and you don't know where I'm going. And therefore, where I go, you cannot come. This is why we say the deity of Christ is crucial. You don't believe in the Jesus of the Bible if you believe in a Jesus who is not God. You do not know where I come from or where I am going. Why does he say that? Because every time he points out the reality that he and the Father are one, they want to point to the idea that, no, we know the Father. He says, you don't know the Father as testified in the fact that you reject me. You didn't even know Moses. Because you reject me, I know that you reject Moses. Back in chapter 7, verse 24, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Verse 19 in our text says, They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So Jesus has restated or reaffirmed his illumination of the world, that he came into a dark world as light and cast light on darkness such that those who would embrace the light would have eternal life, and those who continue to walk in darkness do not. But then Jesus reaffirms his divine, trustworthy testimony. And the reality is that those who believe in him for who he is will have eternal life, and those who don't, won't. We also said that Jesus reaffirms the Pharisees' irreversible doom. You see this time and time again. And we call it irreversible doom because it is a permanent condemnation. When he says in present tense, where I am, you cannot come, they have crossed the threshold past the point of no return. And there are those in that state. Now what do we do with this? What do we do with this? What do we do for the person who says, I'm scared. I think maybe that's me. Maybe I'm a Pharisee. Maybe the darkness in which I've been living while pretending to walk in the light is such that I've committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and there's no returning. I'm going to answer that question for you, but before I do, I want to talk a little bit about Nicodemus. You remember Nicodemus came to Jesus at night The reason he came at night was because he could go in the darkness. Nicodemus lived in the darkness. Chapter 3, verse 2 says, This man came to Jesus by night. And what Jesus told him was perplexing to him. He could not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they were foolishness to him, and he could not discern them. Jesus told him, You need to be born again. What, am I going to go back into my mother's womb? So he did what Roman Catholics do today. He took the metaphor and he chose to take it literally rather than understanding the truth that lied underneath the metaphor. Well, 
You remember from last week in verse 50 of chapter 7, Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? So Nicodemus is now speaking up. Something's happened. Nicodemus, being the teacher in Israel, is willing to risk his life and his ministry and his job and his income because now he feels the need to defend the Jesus that they are ridiculing. And as you probably know, in chapter 19, verse 39, Nicodemus also, this is after Jesus' death, Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. And this was not at night. So something's happened. I would say it would be safe to say that Nicodemus was born again. Can a Pharisee become born again? Yeah. What is the point of no return? I would say the point of no return is when you don't care. But I would also warn you the way Scripture warns you, don't wait. While today is still today, do not harden your heart. Repent while today is still today. Because the person who continues to say, well, there's always tomorrow. You know, I'll get this right tomorrow. You're running a great eternal risk of losing your soul. And as I said earlier, what ought to be happening is that you and I would increasingly become committed to repentance ourselves such that people would want to know Christ for knowing us. We've observed Jesus restating that he is the light of the world so that we would earnestly call sinners to repent before it's too late. Jesus loved Nicodemus. He shared truth with him and Nicodemus turned and he repented and he followed Jesus and the result is that He's on record in the New Testament for having ministered to Jesus after his death. What about you? What about those you love? What about those who continue to reject truth but continue to pretend they're not? That's the real concern because that was the Pharisees. The Pharisees displayed what seemed to be an interest in truth. But as that funnel gets tighter and tighter those who are the false converts are more and more willing to say, you know what, I'm out. And they turn and they walk away from him. You and I have some window of opportunity, a short, small window of opportunity during which to be faithful to Christ and see the Lord use us to bring others to repentance as we ourselves display the rivers of life that flow from our hearts. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and for its veracity, for the kindness you've shown to us in giving it to us. And we, we ask, Father, that you would help us to trust and honor you. Even now as we sing, that your glory would be on display and that the rivers of life that truly flood from our hearts as we sing to you would cultivate in us an increasing ability to win people to Christ for his glory. It's in his name we pray. Amen.